everyone. Welcome to Dr. D show. I am Dr. Deepika Krishnan and thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. I want to make sure that you are hearing us clear and well. Send us your answers below and let me know if there is anything we could do for you. Okay, so this question is for everyone. Have you ever felt butterflies in your stomach, especially when uh, you are nervous? Uh, you know that when you get the signals from an unexpected source and that is your second brain. You have heard about second brain? The second brain which is hidden in the walls of the digestive system, what we can also call brain in your gut, changes the gut microbiome and inflammation in the gut can affect the brain and uh, causes symptoms like uh, anxiety or depression. Our gut-brain axis is also connected through the immune system. The gut and the gut microbiomes play an important role in our immune system and the inflammation in the body by controlling what is passed in the body and what is excreted. Research have shown that marine collagen is beneficial for our gut and uh, for our immune system. Glutamine, one of the amino acids in marine collagen, helps preventing inflammation of the gut by uh, healing the leaky gut syndrome. Glycine and proline, the two main amino acids in marine collagen, may help heal the stomach lining and prevent stress-induced ulcers through the positive impact of uh, uh, central nervous system. Scientists have found that marine collagen shows promising results in healing your intestinal tissue, your joint, muscle, hair, skin, and so on. For to get the maximum benefits of a marine collagen, I would recommend 12 grams to two spoons of marine collagen added to your tea, water, smoothie, soup, anything. And for more information, please visit www.immunosciences.a. the show of Dr. Dees, we would understand the link between digestion, mood, health, and even the way you think. So make sure you listen to the episode till the end because there is a lot to learn. We have a very special guest, Dr. Stephanie. We will be discussing about gut inflammation and mental health. Dr. Stephanie follows an integrative approach when treating her patients utilizing a number of techniques. Dr. Stephanie works mostly with elite athletes using her training as a chiropractor and soft tissue specialist. She also uses comprehensive and functional medicine testing combined with therapeutic doses of supplements and specific diets. Without any delay, let us say a big hi to Dr. Stephanie. Hello, Dr. Stephanie. Hi, thanks so much for having me on here. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I mean, it is a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you know, you have uh, treated patients from all around the world and you know, such wonderful, famous athletes are under your treatment. Uh, 
you know, how, how did you get into, you know, becoming such fabulous and why did you choose this uh, chiropractic and functional medicine together? Yeah. So I ended up in functional medicine from my own health history. So I actually was at the end of my chiropractic college um, where I was already planning on working with athletes. I had a mentor, um, you know, he used acupuncture, soft tissue, some pretty, you know, I saw him getting great results with people. So I knew I was going to follow in his footsteps, but then, then I got pretty sick and, you know, I didn't think I was going to be able to actually do that manual treatment because I was having a lot of mental health issues, which came on as like very serious, like panic attacks and sense of impending doom that kind of came out of nowhere. And that's, and you know, it was paired with a lot of other symptoms like nervous system issues and, um, numbness and tingling. My body went almost paralyzed on one side. Like I, I was having a lot of symptoms that was no one was tying together and, and it kind of just guided me into functional medicine. So, you know, I was already, I graduated and I started working with these athletes, um, in a manual setting as I was working on, you know, fixing my health. And they kind of saw me through my struggles because I would have to cancel. And then I would share what was going on. So they could kind of understand why sometimes I wasn't maybe the most reliable with my timing or whatever it was. And then I feel like that made them more comfortable to tell me about maybe some anxiety they were having or, you know, gut issues. Cause I had severe gut issues that, you know, no one kind of tied together for years, like from when I was a child. So that's how I kind of um, brought the two together. Then I found functional medicine because I was tentatively diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, finding like plaques in my brain. So like there was some serious stuff going on. Um, and then, and then I found functional medicine through that. And then that was just the path that I went down and I just tied them all together and started applying the stuff I did for sick people on these healthy people to help them actually perform better. You know, that's so interesting that how we discover so many wonderful uh, things on our way. In fact, I discover functional medicine in a similar way, you know, when I was going through something and suddenly I come across this functional medicine and now it is a part of our company. So yeah. the, Dr. Stephanie, the gut and the brain are the prime examples of how, you know, how one can affect other. Uh, an imbalanced gut is associated with many diseases, including mood disorders like depression. Will you please set, shed some light on, you know, how the gut affects our mood? Yeah, so I'll touch on depression and anxiety, but first I'll just kind of explain the way that they're connected so people can kind of understand. Um, and my clinic's named the Vegas Clinic. And the vagus nerve is one of those direct connections. So, you know, you can actually see the connection. It's a nerve that starts at the brainstem and it goes down and it innervates almost all of your organs, but there's a strong gut connection with it. And so 80% um, of the information from the gut is going up to the brain because that's how, it, how important that information is that the body is getting from the gut. And then it, the brain takes action based on the information it's getting from there. And only 20% is from the brain to the actual gut. So we can see how much the gut is influencing the brain just based on that connection with that vagus nerve. There's, there's different things that can happen. First of all, if there's any overgrowths in the gut or certain bacteria or infections, then those toxins, or even sometimes that bacteria can actually travel up the vagus nerve. It's like a bi-directional highway. And sometimes it can bypass our blood brain barrier, which is really meant to protect our brain from 
stuff getting in that's not supposed to just like how we have our gut barrier which we're going to talk about so you know that's one of the direct connections and then there's the neuroimmune loop which you kind of talked about and that's like immune cells or chemokines different chemicals receptors that are made in our gut that is the way that our gut and our brain are are speaking to each other um yeah and then like i said there's the actual metabolites from different bugs in our microbiome so certain bugs can predispose us to brain-based inflammation and it can lead to things like depression. This is one of the like physical causes of depression or anxiety. And they're even finding that depending on the overgrowth that you have, like you can be more prone to depression or anxiety. So for instance, there's a bug that can grow in our gut called clostridium and it inhibits part, it makes too much dopamine stay in our brain and it can cause more anxious like behavior. Campylobacter, another bacteria can cause panic attacks. It's shown to cause panic attacks. And then there's other ones that are more, you know, blocking of our neurotransmitters or cause inflammation in our brain that cause our neurotransmitter like serotonin, which is our feel good hormone or neurotransmitter to be depressed. And then, you know, we're getting more of like a depressive state. Um, and, and now there's even new data coming, or it, it's, it's more of a theory about the vagus nerve. So there's the anterior part of our, the front, there's two branches to our vagus nerve. So one's the anterior or the one that comes off the front of the brainstem. And then there's the posterior or the ones that comes off behind the front one. And so what we're seeing is first based on infections or whatever stressors are on our body, it's not always infections. Um, you know, we're getting into our sympathetic nervous system and that's our stress, stress part of our nervous system. Our vagus nerve is our rest and digest part of our nervous system. So when we're too much in our sympathetic, that's when we're feeling anxiety, stress, overwhelmed, all of that kind of thing. But once it goes on for too long mm -hmm. and our body can't catch up and we go into what's our called our dorsal or our posterior part of our vagus nerve then we're more shut off. We're more in that depressive stage. So that's when we're in like the exhaustion phase, like, you know, and so based on epigenetics, inflammation, based on family history, some people are more prone to depression or prone to anxiety. And, you know, what's their, what do they have in common, but their environment, which foods do they eat, which microbiome they inherit. And then the way that their microbiome builds based on, you know, family practices, family trauma, all of that. So you know, I think a big part is the actual physical problems, but things like trauma and things like, and even, you know, trauma when the baby's in utero changes the way our gut, our gut microbiome, the strength of our gut or our, our soil, if you want to call it that, like our good microbiome that gives off the, the good uh, fatty acids that are anti-inflammatory that give off the B vitamins that our body needs that, you know, help give off help make us make more serotonin and have like this steady mood, you know, you see aberrations in that, like through families and you see like, you know, mental disease becomes like very common amongst families, but, um, just, you know, rebalancing the gut and even just the turning on your vagus nerve, which we teach a lot of people like different ways to turn on your vagus nerve that also can help your gut immune system and, you know, help people be less depressed, less anxious, whatever their problem is, but there's 
like a very, very close connection between the gut and the brain. The gut is like our headquarters and, you know, every other microbiome in our body, like lining our nose, lining our mouth, vaginal microbiome, skin microbiome is all influenced by our gut microbiome. So it's like the headquarters, like, you know, CIA has a headquarters and then it has all these other little offices. It is the main hub in my, in my opinion. Yeah, I like the, you know, comparison which you gave, like the, the CIA and the head. So, uh, Dr. Sunny, what, what should one do? Because you um, you did mention that sometimes uh, the depression, which is, you know, uh, cause of what you eat and, you know, what happens in your gut and it can be hereditary as well. So what can one do if uh, there is some kind of uh, mental illness in the family, uh, you know, going on? What What things, what changes can one do? particularly uh, in their eating practices? Yeah. So, and again, you know, I know there's controversy always with diet, but in my personal experience and the experience of a lot of my practice, you know, it's lowering those like processed carbohydrates. It's eating more organic foods because, you know, these processed uh, uh, carbohydrates like bread, pasta, like even like, you know, too much of certain grains, you know, they're detrimental to our gut lining, um, to our gut microbiome. They feed overgrowths. Like, you know, we treat a lot of parasites and we treat a lot of like that people think are rare that are not rare at all. They're just not necessarily always acute. Sometimes they can be chronic. And so, you know, we want to do a good amount of protein and we want it to, I like animal protein personally, and then, you know, healthy fats and less of those kind of more detrimental carbohydrates for fixing the gut, in my opinion, but also having all different types of, of plant fibers that are like prebiotics or soluble fiber, or, um, you know, making sure like, you know, collagen, like, I feel like just a lot of people are low in a lot of these essential amino acids. So, but they need to be able to break them down. So, you know, I haven't even touched on like stomach acid, being able to break down your protein. Like there's a lot of a lot of work and a lot of things that go on in the gut that make us give us the ability to absorb nutrients from our actual food. Right. And one of them is making sure we have proper stomach acid, making sure the liver is draining. So we're getting the bile that helps break everything down the pancreas as well. Um, you know, so food wise, you know, uh, that's usually where we go, but we, we want you to have like a lot of different prebiotic fibers, if you can handle them, but sometimes we've really got to starve everything out. And we're even waiting a little bit, depending on how damaged the gut is. Yeah. So uh, you mean, you know, things like intermittent fasting, you know, you know, giving the gut a rest, does it help? Uh, oh yeah. And intermittent fasting as well. Yeah. From a diet definitely was one of the biggest things that helped me when my, and my gut was like a disaster. I couldn't handle a lot of foods. So we are going to speak about intermittent fasting, you know, towards the later of the program. But uh, connecting with this, I totally agree that how, you know, uh, processed carbohydrate and things, because, you know, uh, in our regular life, we also have experience, you know, when we stuff off too much of uh, carbohydrates and then suddenly we are sleepy and drowsy. In fact, uh, there is a very interesting study about microbiomes which say that the microbiomes, when they digest the uh, processed carbohydrates and the milk, they release some kind of uh, yeah, uh, the, I mean, the chemicals, which is almost similar like the effect of alcohol. 
you know so that's that's why we if we drink too much of milk or if you have too much of processed carbs suddenly we are feeling lazy and carbohydrate so i really love that study that how uh, microbiomes um, in our gut which are tiny uh, our pets you know that's what i call uh, my patient that they are our pet which are in our body and they are feeding what what we are giving them so if you give them good they will be good bacteria if you give them bad they will be bad bacteria so yeah i i just love the study and the way uh, you have explained that how things are connected and how you know food uh, creates such such a strong impact as uh, so you have mentioned about good fats you mentioned about how pre and probiotics help um, our gut and also you spoke about having good fibers Uh, so inside our bellies we have extensive intestinal lining covering more than 4000 square feet of surface area when working properly it forms a tight barrier that controls what get absorbed into our bloodstream and what not but an unhealthy gut lining may trigger the inflammation that could lead problems within the digestive tract and so dr stephanie would you like to you know tell our uh, viewers our listeners about the leaky gut and the gluten intolerant thing because um, i think you know day by day a lot of people are getting gluten intolerant what is the reason of that and why these things are happening yeah so when i explain leaky gut to my patients i kind of explain the gut an oversimplified explanation of the gut so a tube starting from your mouth ending at your anus where you poop it all out and it's a single cell layer and it's like picture a hose the tube whatever makes it easier and like you said there's tight junctions so the cells are like very tightly packed and they're very selective of what can get through because right behind that single layer of our cells is our access to our bloodstream so the the tube is actually considered still an external part of our body a continuation of say our skin inwards it's it's still it's not considered in your body until it's into the bloodstream so it's meant to be very protective very selective and what we have are certain foods certain trauma like gluten which you said like alcohol like certain medications um you know low stomach acid not like liver problems that can lead to disruption of that barrier and we lose that selectiveness of what's allowed to get through into our bloodstream and so obviously when there's that barrier disruption your body and your bloodstream has a lot more to deal with it's having more of an immune response against undigested food maybe some bacteria maybe some other toxins that get through into our lumen of our actual that tube that i was talking about so when when that happens like there can be a plethora of different signs and symptoms of leaky gut you know and for years this was very unaccepted um explanation of what was going on in the body but now we know that it's a it's a real thing and there's ways to test for it and often you can just you know tell based on certain symptoms lots of skin issues bloating diarrhea constipation like you know there's joint pain like all of that cuz our body is just like what it's doing is taking those toxins or those immune like our immune cells will go and attack say it's a food particle that's still in a full protein and our body makes an immune response against it but there's so much of it going on in the body so the body just kicks it out of the bloodstream because our body will do what it needs to to keep us safe so now it's kicked out and it's in the interstitium which means like 
in your skin in between cells, right? And it's giving off chemicals like, come clear me out. Like I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. And so it causes tightness in the joints, pain. If it gets to your skin, it's causing, it's, it's trying to escape through your skin. It's causing rashes, eczema. So, you know, brain fog, if it, if these toxins can disrupt the brain and we know there's a big connection between a leaky gut barrier and a leaky brain barrier, because it's the same chemicals that, you know, disrupt those barriers. So, um, you know, the, the root causes that you go after are like similar to the things that we were talking about before overgrowths and different toxins and, you know, not having enough nutrients and not enough stomach acid and, and all of these things. But, you know, we also need to fill in the gaps and help give the fuel to that stomach line or gut lining that actually helps heal it. And you were talking about glutamine and proline and, you know, in, in your collagen supplements. So those are some things that help um, that leaky, that leaky gut barrier. And then what I've learned more about over the years is the mucus lining, like how important that is from a leaky gut perspective, or even a nutrient absorption perspective, because if we don't have proper bacteria that actually make our mucus layer stay a certain thickness, then we can have, it's harder for us to absorb our nutrients. So we can have, you know, um, the nutrients can't get through, so to speak, the mucus lining is supposed to be like a certain thickness. It can be too thin and then it can be too thick. So, you know, there's a lot of that. We're still learning about gut and gut health and, um, leaky gut and everything, but you know, all of these, these, um, things that we do know that we can go after are having huge, huge, giving huge relief for people from multiple symptoms and even systemic disease, because if stuff can reach your bloodstream, then that's when you start to get other things like you work with cancer, or, you know, we're talking about mental health, like all of those things start to be affected. Yeah. In fact, uh, uh, leaky gut, which is an autoimmune disease, you have explained that how uh, our body, uh, you know, tries to protect uh, the thing. But what is happening? You know, all the uh, people who have leaky gut are not allowed to eat gluten. But off lately, a lot of people have stopped eating, um, you know, gluten products and uh, things based on gluten. Is it a safe practice to do that or, uh, you know, one should have, I, I, I think a lot of people here must be having this question that is it a fad of not eating gluten or mm-hmm. actually one should avoid gluten? What do you tell to your patients? So, um, I mean, for sure, if you're sick and having issues like gluten, I, I tell everyone gluten's not like a, it's never going to be a high performance food. It's not like And, you know, I think that that food has changed. There's not, it's not ancient grains anymore. They've been hybridized and, you know, I, the gluten content's higher. And then there's glyphosate in there, which is like Roundup, which disrupts our microbiome. And, you know, I think that it's just not created the same way, nor do I think most grains are the easiest things to digest. And I think because our world becomes more toxic and then we have even more things coming at us. I I just don't think it's something necessary to just, we know it's immunogenic, which means it's stimulating your immune system. Um, We know that it it increases our our, our chance of having leaky gut or, you know, celiac disease or anti-gliadin. So that like, you know, the immune response. And then we know, so I, I mean, I personally was diagnosed with celiac disease, so I would never touch it, but it's not gonna ever be something that I tell anyone who's sick to eat or 
and if you can handle it and you think and, and people are having like subclinical and they think oh i'm fine i mean i'm not going to shame them for it but I, I really i just don't think it's a high performance food like it's something that i think most people should avoid especially modern day gluten and then there's some talk about fermenting it and then it's a bit better you know so i'm up i still just have people stay away from it Okay, so, uh, you know, doctor, you just spoke about fermenting the food. In fact, uh, in India, uh, you, we know that, you know, lectin and grains, sorry, the pulses and grains have so much of lectin, gluten and those kind of things, which harm your uh, body generally. But in India, we love our pulses, we love our, uh, you know, grains, but we have a very interesting method to eat it, you know, uh, and I'm sure you know that that if we soak your pulses uh, for maximum more than you know three to four hours or if possible overnight and then if you pressure cook it which in our home we always do it the lectin is um, I mean the lectin comes out of that and it's not any more harmful and your stomach your gut digest it's very very comfortable so like you said it there are ways of eating it there are you know methods the fermenting mm -hmm. food um, yeah you know, we ferment our rice, we ferment our da, uh, sorry, pulses. So it's, there are ways. I think, yeah. you know, one should follow their ancient practices and uh, till the time you're not having any kind of problem, it is okay to have that. But yeah, I think your, um, you know, grandmothers and everything, they had the perfect practice till the time you actually didn't face, don't face anything. So I speaking, agree. Yeah, so speaking about, you know, gut issues, again, constipation is the common problem that most of, uh, you know, most of the people care to admit. Uh, do you think, I mean, in fact, the, the studies say that one should poop twice a day minimum. So what do you think that how our lifestyle eating habits are affecting the gut and also creating constipation, which people do not talk about and, do, you know, try to ignore? How, how do you deal with the patient and what kind of food do they, sh um, they should eat, people who are facing any constipation issues? Well, with constipation, I mean, we go about it, you know, we're always, again, looking at first if there's any like infection or overgrowths that are causing like a slower movement of the bowel. We're looking at the vagus nerve because we know that's what's in charge of what's called our migrating motor complex or that like downward peristalsis. So there's different toxins and there's different bugs that give off things that will cause gastroparesis or they will cause the movement to be not, um, you know, where it should be. So there's practices like, you know, fasting is one of them that helps turn on the migrating motor complex. So at least 12 hours between your last meal and your first meal, four to five hours in between helps turn it on. So we don't want people like just snacking on food throughout the day. Um, you know, and if we're looking for overgrowth, um, and you know, from my experience, um, small intestinal parasites are one of the most common causes of that really stubborn, stubborn chronic constipation. So we're always making sure that those aren't present and getting rid of those. And usually if you get rid of those, the bowel will start moving, um, from a food perspective, we don't want to feed them. So we talked about the processed carbs, but we need to make sure you're having enough fiber. You have enough, you know liquid in your diet so that it's not drying up the bowels. Um, but, you know, like I said, vagal nerve has been huge liver. You have to have proper stomach acid. You have to have your liver drained. So we look at all those things and we have people eating in those patterns, like healthy whole foods, making sure they're getting enough 
fiber, making sure they're not drinking enough water. And, you know, sometimes using things that help that can, those pro kinetics that help everything move better. Um, so those are some of the things and supporting mitochondrial health. So those are all things that we kind of do when we have kind of chronic constipation, but, um, you know, it, same, same kind of underlying thing for the opposite, which is diarrhea. Like we're always looking for underlying root causes of things. Yeah. And uh, what about intermittent? Let's, you know, uh, please give us more information about intermittent fasting, because again, you know, some do it rightly, some do it, you know, different ways. And I also know people who fast for 16 hours and then have their pizza and burgers. So uh, what is the right way and uh, how it helps our gut? Yeah. So, you know, eating and digesting food is an inflammatory process. So if we're eating all day, we're just creating more and more inflammation. So, you know, someone who's, and I was the opposite. I didn't have constipation. I had severe diarrhea and it was one of the practices that helped my gut to start healing. Um, and you know, when I'm working with males, you can push it a little bit more with them. So say your last meal is at seven or six and you have like, you know, a few hours before you go to bed, that's healthy. And then the, the next day they're eating like 18 hours after. So, you know, 12 hours is going to be 7 a.m. So you just add the next few hours. It's not that hard to fast, um, but you just can't have any protein or fat or, or actually you can have fat in the morning. Sorry. You just can't have protein or carbohydrates depending on where you're starting and your blood sugar and all of that. You're not getting shaky and feeling awful. Like you can start. That's why I get people to start like with the 12 hours, you should be able to go 12 hours from bedtime to the next morning eating. And then we can push it forward from there so that we're not stimulating too much of a cortisol response, stressing your body more. Um, so men, I'll let, I'll let go to 18 hours, females, you know, it seems like it affects their blood sugar hormones a little bit more. So we're not going to push as much. Like I can fast now. And I used to be the person that had to eat every three hours or I was like shaky. I have the sweatiness, almost going to faint like that hypoglycemia when it just drops. And now I cannot eat for days. And it was, like I said, one of the biggest things that helped my stomach to heal was giving it that break from eating. And I would do like, I drink coffee, teas might be better, but in the morning, just either with pure fat or just on their own, um, you know, making sure you're drinking water first though, before you have your tea or, or coffee, but that liquid is really important for me to, to make it through. Um, and then, you know, when you break your fast, you're breaking it with like protein and fat and, you know, those kind of things, not, you don't want to turn on your insulin and have like, like you said, pizza and, and whatever other <laughs> pasta or something like that. So that's how we go about it. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, very interesting, you know, uh, uh, having the right knowledge of intermittent uh, fasting and, you know, taking some guidance uh, from, you know, doctors like you or any other functional medicine doctor really helps to go for a longer way. Uh, you know, 
Dr. Stephanie, I, you know, uh, we had a lot of questions. In fact, there are some questions popping up uh, asking about that how one should stop eating uh, emotional eating, which is a big thing. And since we are talking about brain and gut barrier and how, uh, particularly with females, you know, we have we do so much of emotional eating when we are upset, we eat. When we are happy, we eat. Um, you know, when we have our periods, then we eat. So. And then we just go and eat anything. So mm -hmm. how, what do you recommend your patient? How will you take, um, our, you know, how will you make our listeners understand that what happens and how to control that? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people who are emotional eaters and like certain people are stressed and they don't eat and some people are stressed and they do eat and they go for it more for comfort. And if you're going for comfort food, you're going for that either like carbohydrate, heavy carbohydrate and fat kind of mixed together, not so not usually so healthy, or you're just, you know, wanting that hand to mouth kind of, uh, it's, it's a soothing thing, right? We we're, we're still like self soothing, like little babies when they're sucking their thumb, right? We just use alcohol or foods, whatever it is for the person. So, I mean, I get people to find practices that are soothing otherwise, right? So, I mean, obviously you can coach people to do healthier snacks that, but you're still, I don't like people snacking a lot. So anything, I have a whole list of vagal nerve exercises or meditations, or even just different, like, um, guided things to something else that's comforting for you or finding like a drink that's comforting that maybe has a little bit of fat in it, like a turmeric latte, like stuff like that. That's, that's how I go about having, or L-theanine, or I have this drink called Relax Max. Like it's from one of the companies and it just helps to soothe you that way. So I just try and coach people on different ways to self-soothe essentially. Okay. So we have a question here. What's the best food to eat during PMS that doesn't harm your body? You know, crazy hunger pang. She has mentioned like, um, you know, uh, yeah, especially. yeah. And I would say healthy yeah. fats for sure. <laughs> like, what kind yeah. of fats would you recommend? So I don't know if they're if they like avocado or some, you know, avocado with some little bit of salt and pepper and a little bit of drizzled olive oil on it. Like that could be soothing, and it's healthy fats. It's anti-inflammatory because you don't want to add more inflammation to the to the fire when that's what's causing, you know, your hunger pains or, um, yeah, that's one of the things that comes to mind. Do you have any? I think, you know, again, avocado is a very good source and, you know, having a bowl of soap almonds or, oh, you yeah. know, so, you know, um, pumpkin seeds, those kind mm -hmm. of stuff, what we want, that good fat, it will give you filling and it will also, you know, soothe your hunger pangs. And I think the satisfactory taste, which you want, uh, these fat, they provide you very effectively. Yeah. And you spoke about, you know, turmeric latte, which is, uh, you know, again, very popular in India, which is mm -hmm. milk added with turmeric. And we have some homegrown spices, sorry, home spices like cinnamon, um, you know, mm -hmm. pepper, add those things. If you want a bit of sweetness, add some honey. But I think, yeah, it, it suits. I mean, just it's a kind of a practice, a kind of a lifestyle, which you have to do it. So if you are having hunger pangs and getting, you know, crazy uh, cravings to so have a cup of that, I'm sure uh, fat things and turmeric latte are quite effective in controlling your, you know, giving relax to your gut and the hunger uh, cravings. What do you say? I agree with that. 
completely. people also want to know that of course you have lovely skin so what is the secret of that <laughs> yes in your gut plays a huge important very very important role on your skin whatever you eat is what is shown on your skin particularly people facing with acne issue early aging and lot of skin issues how how what should be they careful about and what should to do take care of the skin health I mean, we're going to sound like broken records, but proper protein and fats as from a diet perspective, like those healthy fibers um, that, you know, my skin and, you know, things you notice, like your skin pattern will tell you a different story. Like if you have like acne on your cheeks, there's usually like some sort of overgrowth. Um, so you want to look into that, like more hormonal would be the chin and the neck and, you know, fixing the gut is going to help fix the hormones as well. Um, but I'm just like a big proponent of always like removing those things that are bogging down our, our health. So, you know, if we have high exposure to heavy metals, heavy metals, feed overgrowth that screws up our mineral balance. We don't have good minerals. We can have early aging our skin, our, our hair. Um, you know, if we don't have adequate protein that we're actually absorbing, um, you know, because we don't have good stomach acid, we want to do maybe digestive bitters. Maybe sometimes we've got to go further and do some betaine or something. So you, you need, I think people need like maybe a little bit of guidance. There's a lot of stuff that you can do um, on your own for sure. Like even apple cider vinegar with a meal or something kind of acidic, if that doesn't bother you to just make sure you're actually breaking down and absorbing your food is huge. Um, you know, eating healthy is what gets you. So you don't have those nutritional deficiencies, like, are, you know, proper fatty acids, which are going to help your skin. Um, you know, there's signs like different, um, you know, people, when they get these kind of people call them sunspots, but that's usually an indication of something going on more in your liver than anything. So, you know, starting to understand these cues or, you know, if you have a yellowish, yellowish tinge, well, that's liver too. And some people it's like very small changes in their, in their, in their chemistry of their liver, what can show up on their skin. So, and your, your liver is hugely, um, part of your digestive system. Like, so I think that that's overlooked as well. And there's foods that can help your liver and different herbs that help your liver. There's like dandelion, you can have dandelion tea, or you can eat dandelion or any of those bitter foods, arugula, um, you know, there's blueberries, stuff that is very densely packed with antioxidants. Um, you know, those sulfur containing foods like cruciferous vegetables are going to be super helpful for your liver for detox for, um, you know, foods that are high in B12, like red meats are going to be one of the best liver. Sometimes I get people to do liver capsules if they don't want to eat it because then you're absorbing that B12. And, you know, so all of these things are, are like part of what we need. But if we're, say we have low iron because we have H pylori or parasites, or, you know, we have to address that too, because we're not going to be able to do it with just food. We can prevent it with food. We can have more of a chance of not getting those infections. And, you know, so just, you know, and handling stress, meditating, being in a rested state before you eat so that you actually absorb your nutrients. Because when your vagus nerve, which is the nerve for rest and digest. So that's when all the blood goes to your gut and it helps you actually break down that food. If you're standing up and scarfing down food, you're not absorbing nutrients. You're not, you're not 
good it's going to show up in your skin it's so that's a long-winded answer to that. So, yeah and so dr uh, stephanie you were constantly speaking about the vagus nerve and you know how uh, you train your patients to uh, balance your vagus nerve would you give want to give some insight to our listeners here uh, although i do know that you know it's a separate course of yours and you have they have to come under you to get the but just a you know hint or just a thing which they can uh, practice at home you know to enhance their vagus nerve uh, you know and to make it more healthier mm -hmm. yes so i have a lot of at home ones and some of them are simpler some of them are more comfortable or uncomfortable for instance like a cold shower actually turns on your vagus nerve so shocking your body with that cold it actually causes a release of acetylcholine it's another neurotransmitter it's the neurotransmitter of our vagus nerve and it can help you know get you out of you know an, an inflammatory state it can get you out of like anxiety in your brain it kind of just like you know rejuvenate some people go into colder lakes or you know they do ice baths a lot of the athletes do that it helps you clear out like lactic acid that's you know a byproduct in your muscles that can be cause you to be achy but that it turns on your vagus nerve so you know if you don't have somewhere to do a cold plunge you just at the end of your shower for maybe even just a few minutes to start you let the cold water run in it it's important that it hits over your neck and collarbone to kind of your vagus nerve runs from here and it goes down and behind and then it goes and innervates your your um, nervous system um and then you know there's a technique I came up with with a toothpick where I just have people have a toothpick and your your vagus nerve is superficial over your ear here and in behind your ear so you can tap your those spots with a toothpick and I do acupuncture so I was actually getting myself out of an anxious state by because I didn't have needles and I was like you know tapping all of these spots and it helped me calm down and actually calm down my gut too, because I was kind of having a gut attack. So that's one that I find is really powerful. And we've actually had people who have seizures. Sorry. I'd like to repeat that point. You know, you mentioned here, because I'm sure this is very new for us, uh, like outside the earlobe, you're saying? Yeah, right over the tragus of the ear. So I don't know if you can see like right in front here and you tap it with the toothpick and the toothpick has a small surface area similar to like a needle, right? And even in traditional Chinese, they have like pseudo, pseudo acupuncture points. And so the other one is right behind your ear, like right behind your jaw and in between the bone at the base of your skull there that's a really good point to tap it's way more effective with a toothpick than your finger but if that's all you have then that's helpful um another one is right over your your scm and you can tap there uh, and even like someone asked about amenorrhea or like you know there's um or dysmenorrhea sorry i was thinking when i have pain from my period i can tap and it can help soothe it different acupuncture points so that that is really powerful one for the vagus nerve and so what i was going to say is we've actually had people stop their seizures before they came on by activating their vagus nerve with a toothpick so a girl who has had um and they're under control a lot more but she has had like since she was a baby seizures and she's able to stop her seizures before they start now if she can access that and tap her vagus nerve and different other tapping techniques that I showed her over the vagus nerve. Um, other things is facial expression. So like puffing your cheeks, sticking out your tongue and putting it one side to the other with your eyes, looking all the way one way, holding it for 15 seconds, 
coming back to center and looking all the way there. And it tensions the fascia that goes throughout your brain. So the connective tissue and those nerves start in the same area of the brainstem as the vagus nerve. So you help get blood flow, you help turn it on. It's just like a little jolt for it. Um, humming, gargling, and gagging, um, because the, the vagus nerve also innervates the back of our soft palate. Um, mm when you gag or like make yourself gag with like, I don't know, a tongue depressor, people use the end of their tooth um, brush. Um, you know, you could just gargle water or salt water or uh, hum. Those things all turn on your vagus nerve. Um, you know, there's certain scents like bergamot, like there's certain parasympathetic blends and like different like essential oil companies. And they have, it can be lavender, like chamomile, like all these different, like uh, diffusing, you could diffuse them or roll ons. They are going to help turn on your vagus nerve. Um, you know, those are a few of them. And I'm blanking on a middle, a million others that we kind of tell people to do, but those are some that they can do at home. There's also like your fatty acid balance. So if you don't like fish oils are, are one thing that turns on the vagus nerve. Right. Um, but there's even now like vagal nerve stimulators, like that you can attach to the tragus of your ear and you like kind of buzz yourself yeah. and people are using that to help treat their gut and turn off inflammation. So, you know, it, those are powerful tools that, that you can use, um, also, oh, hand massage, like getting someone to massage your hands, um, scalp massage. Yeah. Scalp massage, foot massage, all of those like, and getting pressure points in there help turn on your vagus nerve. Um, yeah. So there's, you know, meditation, yoga, getting that body moving. Those all help as well. So those, but the powerful ones. And even if you're sleeping and you can't sleep or something, or your mind's going, you can always try, even with your eyes closed to just bring your eye first, all the way to the right, hold it for 15 to 30 seconds. You'll feel yourself kind of sigh and release a bit. And then you go to the other side. And if it doesn't work right the first time, then you do it again. It will help. I've used that numerous times to help myself go to sleep when I was going through a stressor or my body was under stress or whatever was going on. Um, so yeah, that's one that I just think is easy when you're already like, you don't want to get up and get a toothpick or have a cold shower. Like it's one that's pretty accessible. Yeah. Okay. So that's pretty interesting. In fact, you know, girls now, you know, that, you know, going for a hand massage or a scalp massage is not only uh, treating yourself, but you're also healing yourself. So yeah, mm -hmm. that's, oh. uh, so Dr. Stephanie, we have some questions here. But, uh, let me just take it one by one and then we can, you know, uh, close the show. The first mm -hmm. one is what dietary changes uh, should I make to help chronic constipation? Okay. We spoke about that. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. uh, ginger, ginger is another one. I, I forgot to say that it affects your vagus nerve because it's a prokinetic, but it can help constipation. And that's a, you could take it as a supplement or as a food, you know, sometimes you need a bit stronger. I mean, for constipation, again, sometimes you need a little help at the beginning while you get figure out if you have any gut overgrowths that are really the underlying cause of the constipation, or if it's thyroid or whatever it is, you want to get to that root cause. But in the short term, you can use magnesium, you make sure you have enough fiber, you're drinking enough water, you know, um, those are like some of the basics that can help uh, enemas people, we get people to use enemas, we just want to make sure it's moving while we kind of find out underlying causes for constipation. 
Yeah. Nimisha has a question. What food should we eat to avoid acidity? Uh, does having acidity means that we have a high stomach acid? No, no. Your stomach is meant to be a very high acidity. So during a meal, the acid, the acidity of your stomach will go between a 1.5 and a 2, and that's hydrochloric acid. That could burn a hole in a penny. If we took your stomach acid and we put it in a jar and we added a penny or we put it in a glass jar and we put a penny in there, it would degrade that penny if it had enough time. It, it is meant to be extremely strong. And part of it is that it sterilizes your food. Um, it causes like a churning. It helps to start to break down those tougher proteins. Um, and then, you know, that it, it mixes with your food and it creates this acidic chyme. And then this chyme hits your small intestine and that gives your gallbladder a single to like really gush like a turkey baster, you know, squeeze down. And that's in, the vagus nerve is in charge of that too. And that's how you get your good uh, release of your bile acids, bile salts, uh, you know, uh, other things are released with our liver. And then at the same time, our pancreas is giving the bicarbonate. So it needs that acid. It gets the bicarbonate carbonate, which is our baking soda, our body makes baking soda. And then that enters the, the lumen of the stomach and it mixes with the food so that it doesn't burn the rest of our insides because our body, the rest of our body cannot handle that acidity. Our body takes a very, very, very serious job of keeping our pH of our blood neutral. So, you know, it's like a very small, I forget, seven point you know, you don't want to be too high or too low because you can be too alkaline and that's going to kill you. And you can be too acidic and that's going to kill you. So I'm not a big proponent of like, this is an alkaline diet because protein is acidic, but it doesn't make you acidic. If you're breaking it down, you need those amino acids. What makes you acidic is toxins from your gut, from a leaky gut. What makes you acidic is having overgrowth imbalances in, in minerals. And that's what makes you acidic. It's not like you know, people think they drink alkaline water and it's going to make the rest of their body like acidic, like no minerals will do that. But, but it's not, it's, you drink lemon, lemon citric, and that helps alkalize your body. It's, it's not just like, like straight, straightforward like that, because our body's smart and it does, it manipulates things. And, you know, so you're, you can be way too alkaline in your, in your gut. And that means, and then you're going to get candida overgrowth. They like a high pH, uh, like a more basic pH. So, you know, we need a, a very specific acid base. And so eating for that is just eating so that you're getting the proper nutrients. You're getting all the micronutrients. Um, you know, what's most important is you're absorbing. What's most important is that you don't have overgrowth and you don't have heavy metals or mold or, you know, th those type of things that a lot of people don't talk about that are what are making you acidic because mold will give off toxins that create and so will overgrowths of good bacteria. We can have an overgrowth of lactobacilli, which is like a very, very good probiotic. But if it's too high in the wrong spot, like high up in our small intestine, and we absorb the D-lactate from it, that causes our pH of our blood to change. And then we feel anxiety and we feel stress and we have to neutralize that. So, you know, there's, and that's when, and you know, oxygen, if we're not getting enough oxygen to tissue, that's when we start to have pH balance, right? So we have to have enough iron. So there's enough red blood cells. So we nourish our, we have good perfusion. So we don't have diabetes or blood sugar imbalances. You know, we don't have cardiovascular disease from, you know, too much inflammation and then oxygen doesn't get to tissue. And then that's when you're too acidic. So that's my. Yeah. Spiel. That's 
<laughs> Sorry. No, that's wonderful info. It's good to know because a lot of time we think that if we are eating acidic food, our stomach is going to get acidic. If we are eating alkaline food, um, you know, uh, which is absolutely a wrong concept. And that's why uh, so many companies are selling alkaline water just to make you understand. But absolutely, you don't need any alkaline water. Uh, just a water with some lemon drop is fine, you know, if you want to you know comfort your gut and you know checking your oxidative stress checking your you know uh, microbiomes those things help collectively to maintain your proper digestion uh, so there is another one question which i'll take this would be the last question probably because you know we are running out of time and this question is really interesting which i also want to know are uh, diets like keto diets are good for health for a longer term mm, i i don't I think I had a personal experience with this and I see this, I did keto and I think I hit a wall. It was so good at first. I think that those diets are meant for healing and getting to, and then my whole goal for people is that their gut is healthy enough. Their body is healthy enough. They have metabolic flexibility so that, and they don't have over, so they can handle different foods and enjoy life and not be like, you know, and not that you can't enjoy life on keto, but it's very strict. Like there's, you know, there's, but so I think having that as kind of like your basis and not overeating carbohydrates and not, you know, I, I, I look more for balance. Now I, if you talked to me years ago, I would have been like, yes, you know, but you have to learn from experiences and you have to see that like, it's not one size fits all. Cause it doesn't work. It's not a great diet for everyone. And there's a lot of things to even consider, um, you know, when you're going keto and ways to like support the body and like how much electrolytes are you getting? Are you getting off water? Cause it's different carbohydrates store, store water. And then we don't have, we could be dehydrated. Like, so, you know, it's not, I don't think personally keto, unless you have like maybe autism like a child with autism or, you know, brain cancer or other cancers that were starving out, um, you know, and that might have to be longer term. I, I, I think that maybe it's just uh, one of those therapeutic options that we have. I'm so glad you spoke about that because, you know, things like these are quite, uh, um, and people are unaware about the complete knowledge of that and a fad practice has been going on, which is disrupting the gut health. So yeah, I'm glad you spoke about specific that how uh, this is a therapy, therapy and, you know, one should take it for a longer duration as a therapeutic procedure only. So uh, thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie, and thank you for your time. And it was a great session. Hope to see you again in the coming episode because there are a lot of questions we need to require answer. Thank you for all everyone you know who have attended the webinar. I'm very sorry if you we are not able to answer all your questions, but uh, we'll try to get Dr. Sydney again and learn more about these things in detail. But uh, for, like I said, thank you. Bye bye, everyone. Have a lovely weekend and thank you so much, Dr. Sydney. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Bye. So for any kind of more info, please visit www.immunosciences.in or uh, you can connect with, you can drop a message or, you know, connect with our team anytime. And if you want any more questions, 
uh, feel free to reach us and we'll make sure we answer all your questions. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.